ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا وسيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد Today then we'll begin with the next narration where Al-Imam Al-Bukhari says Qala haddathana Qutaybah ibn Sa'id Qala haddathana Al-Mughirat ibn Abdirrahman Ana bizzinad, ana al-a'raj, ana bihurayrah Anna Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallama qal Yaqulullah إذا أراد عبدي أن يعمل سيئة فلا تكتبوها عليه حتى يعملها فإن عملها فاكتبوها بمثلها وإن تركها من أجلي فاكتبوها له حسنة وإذا أراد أن يعمل حسنة فَلَمْ يَعْمَلْهَا فَاكْتُبُوهَا لَهُ حَسَنَةً فَإِنْ عَمِلَهَا فَاكْتُبُوهَا لَهُ بِعَشْرِ أَمْفَالِهَا إِلَى سَبْعِ مِئَةً In this hadith of Abu Hurairah رضي الله عنه He says that the messenger of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم said Allah says that if my servant intends to do an evil action, then do not write it upon him until unless he actually does it. And if he intends, or oh, naam, if he does it, then write it to its like, i.e., that it does one evil, then it's written down as one evil. But if he withholds thereafter and doesn't do that action of evil that he intended, then, then write down a good deed for him for that. And if he intends to do a good deed, but then doesn't end up doing it, then write it as a good reward. And if he ends up doing it, then write it as 10 rewards to the likes of it, up to 700 to the like of it. This narration then, the point of it is right at the beginning where the Prophet says that Allah says, Right at the beginning, Yaqulullah, that Allah says. That is the point of the narration, the fact that it is affirming once again the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this, like we said before, when refuting the people of innovation, mentioning multiple different evidences, from multiple different topics, different chapters you'd find these hadith in, 
then that is a means of refuting their falsehood from every angle, from different points, from different variations of evidences. And so here in this hadith, it is about the person who intends to do a bad deed, but he then doesn't do it. Or if he does do it, then what is the end result? A person who intends a bad deed, then initially it is not written down upon him unless he actually does it. And when he does it, if he does it, it's only written down as one bad deed according to that one intention of his upon that one deed of his. But if he then actually restricts himself and stops himself after having intended to do it, then if he stops himself for the sake of Allah, it's written down as a good deed. And if he intends to do a good deed but doesn't manage to do it, it's written down as a good deed. And if he does end up managing to do it, then it's written down as a multiplied amount of reward, 10 times to 700 times multiplication in the reward of that good deed. In this hadith, as Shaykh al says, وفي هذا الحديث بيان فضل الله عز وجل على عباده. There is a clarification here, an explanation of the virtue of Allah سبحانه وتعالى upon His servants. حيث إن السيئة لا تكتب حتى يعملها. Such that an evil deed is not written down upon that servant if he intends to do it until unless he actually does it. فَإِنْ هَمَّ بِهَا فَتَرَكَهَا لِلَّهِ كُتِبَتْ حَسَنًا If that thought came to the individual and he was intent on doing that evil, but then he pulls himself back and realizes, and for the sake of Allah, from the fear of Allah, doesn't do it then, written down as a good deed for him. Because he left that action, that evil, for the sake of Allah. And as for the good deed, if he intends to do that good deed, but he's unable and doesn't get to it, it will be written down as a good deed for him. Because he had that intent to do it. فَكُتِبَتْ حَسَنَا عَلَى هَذَا الْهَمُّ it is therefore written down as a good deed for him because of that, that intent and that intention, that, that, that resolute intent that he was going to do this thing. فَإِنْ عَمِلَهَا كُتِبَتْ عَشَرَ حَسَنَاتِ لَا إِلَىٰ أَضْعَافٍ And if he actually goes and does it, he ends up doing what he intended, 
Then it's written down for him the reward in multiplied manner, in a multiplied manner of 10 rewards up to 700 rewards multiplied in the reward of that action. Then the Sheikh says, it should also be noted, Anna man hamma falam ya'malha fala yakhlu min halat A person who intends to do a bad action, but then he doesn't do it. In the end, he doesn't do it, even though he intended and wanted to do it. In the end, he doesn't do it. There are going to be three scenarios on that situation there. There are going to be three circumstances, three possibilities in that situation of a person wanting to do an evil, but then not doing it in the end. The first situation in there. That a person intends, wants to do a particular evil. But then because of his fear of Allah, his recognition and realization that Allah sees and hears and knows the fear of Allah, then comes back to him. And as a consequence, he abandons that and doesn't carry on and doesn't go and do that evil he was considering or wanting to do. That is the first possible circumstance. A person wants to do an evil, intends to do it, but then the realization comes to him regarding his Lord, the fear returns to him and that recognition comes back to him, so he stops and pulls himself away from that evil that he was going to do. So he stops and doesn't do it for the sake of Allah. كَمَا فَعَلَ الرَّجُلُ الَّذِي هَمَّ أَنْ يَقَعَ بِبْنَةِ عَمِّهِ وَهُوَ أَحَدُ الثَّلَاثَةِ الَّذِينَ انطَبَقَ عَلَيْهِمُ الْغَارِ فَلَمَّا جَلَسَ مِنْهَا مَا يَجْلِسُ الرَّجُلُ مِنْ امْرَأَتِهِ قَالَتْ يَا هَذَا اتق الله ولا تفض الخاتم إلا بحقه فقام عنها وهي أحب الناس إليه فهذا ترك هذا الفعل لله فتكتب له حسنة وهذه الحسنة تتضاعف بقدر ما يحمله عليها فإذا كان تركها شديدا عليه كان أجرها أكثر an example of this first scenario where somebody intended to do an evil but then recognizes the fear of Allah and stops and doesn't do it. The example of that is the example of the ones who were trapped in the cave, the story of the men who were trapped in the cave when the rock came in front of the cave and they were trapped inside. In the end of that, story what happens how does the rock move in the end absolutely but what happens what is the story that leads up to it of the rock moving what do they do 
So they make dua to Allah and within their dua they make the tawassul by their righteous actions. They make the dua saying, Oh Allah, I did X, Y and certain deeds purely for your sake. And so with this dua that they each make and they give an example of a deed that they did for the sake of Allah, then the rock moves and that story mentions that at the end. One of the men, what is the deed that he mentions? Uh-huh. So one of them, it's mentioned how he loved his uncle's daughter such that on one occasion he was about to fornicate with her. And when he was on the verge of doing that and he was in a position enabled to do that, then she said to him, Fear Allah. She said to him as it mentions, Ya hadha ittaqillah. Fear Allah. And as a consequence of that reminder at that time that came to him from the woman, his uncle's daughter, then the fear, the recognition of that fear of Allah, it came to him and the realization returned to him. And as a consequence, even though he was at the situation or in the, the position enabling him to now do that, what he intended and wanted to do, he then stopped because of that fear of Allah when she said to him, Ittaqillah, and then he stopped and moved away and did not do that. So now he left that evil he was intending to do, he was about to do, after being reminded of Allah and the fear of Allah, the recognition and realization of it, and then he stopped because of that, for the sake of Allah, knowing and fearing Allah. So that is the circumstance of the first scenario. In that scenario, he has now left it for the sake of Allah after initially intending it. He left it for the sake of Allah, so for him is written one good deed. A good deed written for that. Initially he fell into that thought of wanting to do it and intending it. But in the end from his fear of Allah, for the sake of Allah, then he realized and recognized and stopped and didn't do it. Left it then for the sake of Allah. So a reward for him. That he's rectified himself in that situation now for the sake of Allah. And the Shaykh says, the reward that you get for doing that in that type of scenario where you are overcome and you want to go and do some evil and you intend to do it and you're approaching it but then you stop after your recognition and fear of Allah once again or that returns to you now the realization regarding your fear of Allah depending on how great that difficulty was in leaving that particular bad or evil then your reward will be equivalent to that. So if it was some type of sin where there was a huge pull to go and do this, and there was therefore a great difficulty in having to pull yourself back and being able to pull yourself out of that evil, if there was some great difficulty and it took a lot from you, 
to stop yourself and to realize this is wrong and to prevent yourself, then your reward will be greater in having done that. That you managed to block the shaitan out even though there was such a great desire or great pull for you to do this evil, that you managed nevertheless to block the shaitan and stop yourself, the greater that situation was, then the greater your reward will be. So that is the first scenario. Second scenario, that a person again intends and wants to do some evil, and again stops and doesn't do it in the end. But this time in this scenario, he stops and doesn't do it in the end, not for the sake of Allah and his fear of Allah, but instead, that a person in this scenario doesn't do it in the end, not because of his fear of Allah or that recognition of the fear of Allah, nor because anybody else stopped him necessarily or anything, but purely because his desire for that evil that he was going to do, it disappeared. He had an intention to do some evil, but then maybe something else came up on this and that, and then he just didn't do that evil, and he lost interest in going and doing that evil. So he hasn't stopped that for the sake of Allah. He hasn't stopped doing that for the sake of Allah or for anybody else stopping him. Just one of those, he had an intent and he wanted to do some evil, then maybe other situations, whatever else happened, whatever else occurred, he just dropped that intention and he was no longer interested in that evil. So now, it's just a casual circumstance where he's dropped the intention to do that evil, not for the sake of Allah, but just whatever else is happening. He basically, basically became preoccupied with something else or along those lines and then didn't do it. Dropped it and didn't think of doing it then. So now that individual is obviously very different to the first situation. In the first situation, he intended the evil and dropped it for the sake of Allah, realizing the fear of Allah. In the second situation, he's dropped it just because of circumstance. Just because of circumstance. Something's happened, he got preoccupied, he just f forget about it, they're not going to do it. For no real reason otherwise. He's doing something else instead. So in that situation, he's dropped the evil, okay, good. He didn't do that evil then. But he hasn't dropped it for the sake of Allah. So there's no reward in that situation. But there's no sin upon him either. Because like the hadith said at the beginning, if somebody intends to do evil, it's not written down until he actually does it. In this scenario, like we just said, he didn't do it. So no evil written upon him. But then he didn't drop that evil for the sake of Allah. It was just circumstance that he dropped it. So there's no reward for him in that one then. The third scenario, again, a person intends to do the evil, again, a person doesn't do it in the end. Remember, all of these three scenarios were that same thing about a person wanting to do an evil, but not doing it in the end. The only thing we're looking at now is why he didn't do it in the end. In the first one, for the sake of Allah, so he's rewarded. In the second one, just circumstance, just that's how it turned out. So there's no reward on that one. The third one, he didn't do it, he intended it, wanted to do it, but in the end he didn't do it because 
He was actually unable to do it in the end, even though he wanted to do it. He intends an evil, wants to do an evil, but he doesn't do it in the end because he wasn't able to do it. He wanted to do it, he just wasn't able to do it in the end. He realizes he can't do that evil in the end. For example, a person who wants to do some type of robbery, some theft, but he realizes the security is too difficult, he's not going to be able to do it. He wants to go rob that bank. He wants to go rob it. He's got an intent. He wants to get all that money. He wants to do it. Or that corner shop or whatever it might be. But then he realizes it's too difficult. Cameras there, security guard there next door, this, that, too many people, houses up. It's not possible. So he can't do that evil because he just can't do it. He wants to do it. But in the end, he doesn't do it because he can't do it. So that's the third circumstance where a person is unable to actually do the evil that he wanted to do. So this individual, what's his circumstance? He didn't do that evil in the end. But his intent and desire to want to do that evil persists. He's never stopped intending to do the evil. It's just that he couldn't do it. Tomorrow, if all the cameras come down, the security guards go home, and he notices the guy leaves the shop open, he's going to go rob it. So in this instance, the evil deed is written upon him. The Shaykh says, تُكْتَبُ عَلَيْهِ سَيِّئَةً So in that case, he didn't do it in the end as well because he was unable to. He wanted to, and if he had the chance, he would still do, but he was unable, so he didn't do it. So you're not going to get a good deed written down there. You've not done that evil, not because of your fear of Allah, not because of any other circumstance and just didn't have the intention to do it anymore. You decided to forget it. You wanted to do it still in this third scenario, but you just couldn't. So in this case, that one evil is still written for him. As for if a person actually began taking the steps towards that evil, but in the end was unable, then he'll get the full evil, the, the full written upon him, the full evil deeds written upon him, not just the one. So now the person wants to rob that shop and he starts taking steps to do so. He starts making his plans, he stops, starts going and doing his reconnaissance, he starts planning things, he starts making uh, uh, false badges to get him through security, whatever. He starts taking the steps to go and rob that place. Starts putting all the pieces of the plan together, getting all the fake IDs or whatever he needs to do. Starts doing it all. But at the last step, he realizes there's some level of security I just can't get past. So then he can't do it now. He's unable to do it. But he's been taking all of those steps to get to that. So now in this case, the, the evil deed in its entirety is written upon him. That evil deed in its entirety 
is written upon him. وَدَلِيلُ هَذَا الْأَخِيرُ قَوْلْ النَّبِيُ صلى الله عليه وسلم إِذَا الْتَقَى الْمُسْلِمَانِ بِسَيْفَيْهِمَا فَالْقَاتِلُ وَالْمَقْتُولُ فِي النَّارِ قالوا يا رسول الله هذا القاتل فما بال المقتول قال لأنه كان حريصا على قتل صاحبه But this third one a person might say how could that be because at the end of the day no matter what happened he didn't actually rob that place He took the steps, he got his fake IDs, he, he went and disabled some of the cameras, he took all of the steps, he was doing it But right at the end one level of security he couldn't do it so he couldn't do it So in the end he didn't Rob that place. How is the entirety of that deed going to be written upon him then? Person may say, how can that be? How can it be that the entirety of that evil of robbing that place, etc. is going to be written upon him in that case? When at the end of the day, he didn't do it. The evidence for it is the hadith. Where the Prophet said, If two Muslims meet with their swords, then the one who kills the other one, the killer, the one who manages to kill the other one, he's in hellfire, and the one killed is in the fire. So they said to the Prophet the one who killed, the one who managed to kill the other one, killed him, that's clear. Murderer killed his Muslim brother in the hellfire. But the one who got killed, why is he in the fire? And the answer was Because the other one was absolutely fully intent on killing the other one too He was there striking his sword taking all of the means to kill the other one as well It just so happened in the end he was unable to do it The other one killed him first So then it's mentioned there how he ends up in the fire too that is an example of somebody taking the means to do an evil, taking the steps and going ahead and doing it. But in the end, for whatever reason, at the, at the last stage, he's unable to fulfill it all. But he's been taking all the steps and going down all of that road to do that evil, then the entirety of it is written upon him. So, that is what is mentioned in this section but the point was here regarding the beginning of the hadith <coughs> where the prophet ﷺ mentions that allah says and then the narration is mentioned so that again highlights the speech of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala the next narration قال حدثنا إسماعيل بن عبد الله قال حدثني سليمان بن بلال عن معاوية بن أبي مزرد عن سعيد بن يسار عن أبي هريرة رضي الله عنه أن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم قال خلق الله الخلق فلما فرغ منه قامت الرحم فقال مه قالت هذا مقام العائذ بك من القطيعة فقال ألا ترضين أن أصل من وصلك وأقطع من قطعك 
قالت بلى يا ربي قال فذلك لك ثم قال أبو هريرة فهل عصيتم إن توليتم أن تفسدوا في الأرض وتقطعوا أرحامكم This narration now Again it has within it its shahid The point that we're trying to extract from this Is an evidence upon the attribute of The speech of Allah And again like you'll see now The various different types of narrations That are being used here In this one It mentions that when Allah created the creation خَلَقَ اللَّهُ الْخَلْقِ فَلَمَّا فَرَغَ مِنْهُ And then when Allah completed that creation قَامَتِ الرَّحِمْ How do they translate that? The wombs, but what? Wombs they just say? The wombs they arose. So then Allah said, فَقَالَ like, What is it? قَالَتْ هَذَا مَقَامُ الْعَائِذِ بِكَ مِنَ الْقَطِيعَةِ They said this is the, the time or the situation of the one seeking refuge in you from the cutting of the ties of kinship. How do they phrase it? Who sever the ties of kinship. So then, فَقَالْ أَلَا تَرْضَيْنَا أَنْ أَصِلَ مَنْ وَصَلَكِ Are you not satisfied or pleased that I connect those ties of kinship? أَصِلَ مَنْ وَصَلَكِ That I connect whom connects you. But how do they say it? That I keep good relations with the one who keeps the good relation with you. وَأَقْطَعَ مَنْ قَطَعَكِ And that I cut off those who cut you off. قَالَتْ بَلَا يَا رَبِّ They say, yes, of course, our Lord. قَالَ فَذَلِكَ لَكِ So then Allah says, that is for you then. You will have that. And then Abu Huraira, he recites, فَهَلْ عَسَيْتُمْ إِنْ تَوَلَّيْتُمْ أَنْ تُفْسِدُوا فِي الْأَرْضِ وَتُقَطِّعُوا أَرْحَامَكُمْ They give the full Muhsin Khan there or not? Ayah. Go on. Mm. So would you then, if you were given the authority, cause corruption upon the land, and then the point at the end, that you would then cut the ties of kinship. This narration here, the topic of it, you can see is completely different to some of the other narrations we've been talking about. But the point of it, is the fact that within this narration Allah speaks and so you can see how Imam al-Bukhari finds all of these various different types of narrations where there is a mentioning of Allah speaking and puts them all down together here even though their topics may be completely different the point of them all that he wants to extract is there that in them all is a mentioning of Allah speaking so here, 
it mentions the shahid is when Allah says, فَقَالَمَهْ Allah is the one who says to them that, and then later on, are you not satisfied or pleased? That line is also Allah saying that. فَدَلَّ ذَلِكَ عَلَىٰ أَنَّ كَلَامَ اللَّهِ مَسْمُوعَ So this indicates how the speech of Allah is heard when Allah speaks, they hear. وَأَنَّهُ بِحَرْفِ And that the speech of Allah is with letters. وَهَذَا هُوَ الَّذِي أَرَادَ الْبُخَارِيُّ رَحِمَهُ اللَّهُ تَوْكِيدَهُ this is what Al-Imam Al-Bukhari wanted to emphasize here. حديث after that then قال حدثنا مسدد قال حدثنا سفيان عن صالح عن عبيد الله عن زيد بن خالد قال مطر النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم فقال قال الله أصبح من عبادي كافر بي ومؤمن بي this narration again you have the clear point when on this occasion there was some rain that occurred overnight. And one time, the companions prayed with the Prophet ﷺ, the Fajr prayer, and that night, it had been raining. So then after the prayer, the Prophet ﷺ turns around and speaks to the companions and tells them about the rain and who is the one who sends the rain. The ones who say it is because of the stars and the constellations that the rain falls then they have disbelieved in Allah and the ones who say that it is from Allah they are the believers in Allah but the point is فَقَالْ قَالَ اللَّهِ in the narration it says that Allah says that there are those from my servants who are disbelievers in me and those who are believers in me that statement is made as قَالَ اللَّهِ that Allah said so again in that narration, it mentions the same point. In fact, the whole hadith is mentioned. أَنَّ الرَّسُولَ صَلَّى أَصْبَحَ بِالْحُدَيْبِيَّ عَلَىٰ إِفْرِ سَمَاعٍ كَانَ مِنَ اللَّيْلِ فَقَالْ هَلْ تَدْرُونَ مَاذَا قَالَ رَبُّكُمْ قَالُوا اللَّهُ وَرَسُولُهُ أَعْلَمْ قَالْ قَالَ أَصْبَحَ مِنْ عِبَادِ مُؤْمِنٌ بِي وَكَافِرٌ بِي فَأَمَّا مَنْ قَالَ مُطِرْنَا بِفَضْلِ اللَّهِ وَرَحْمَتِهِ فَذَلِكَ مُؤْمِنٌ بِي كَافِرٌ بِالْكَوْكَبِ وَأَمَّا مَنْ قَالَ مُطِرْنَا بِالنَّوْءِ كَذَا وَكَذَا فَذَلِكَ كَافِرٌ وَمُؤْمِنٌ بِالْكَوْكَبِ That on one night there was a sound that was heard or it mentions in the other narrations because of the rain that fell and then the Prophet said to them هَلْ تَدْرُونَ مَاذَا قَالَ رَبُّكُمْ Do you know what your Lord said regarding last night and the rain falling? Do you know what your Lord said? Um, and they said, Allah and His Messenger know best. And so then the Prophet ﷺ told them that Allah said, Qala, that from my servants there are those who have arisen, because this was at the time of Fajr, there are those who have arisen as believers in me and others as disbelievers in me. So as for those who say the rain came by the virtue and mercy of Allah, they are believers in me and disbelievers in the stars and the constellations. But as for those who say we got the rainfall because of the constellations and the stars lining up and then it rains on this earth, 
then they are the ones who are disbelievers in me and believers in those stars and constellations. A few points here the Shaykh mentions. The main point is clear about the speech of Allah. But other points that are mentioned here, one is the fact that when the Prophet said to them, do you know what Allah said? They said, Allah and his messenger know best. Allahu wa rasooluhu a'lam. Allah and his messenger know best. So what do we say about that? Allah and his messenger know best. هَلْ يَكُونُ فِي الْأُمُورِ شَرْعِيَّةِ أَلَّتِي تَقَعُوا الْآنِ That can we say this in legislative Islamic affairs up until now? That Allah and his messenger know best. Or what do you do? What do you say? So here, as Sheikh Al-Thaymeen mentions, it is possible to say it in legislative affairs because even to now, Allah and His Messenger are still from the creation who is the most knowledgeable of all of the Sharia. It is still obviously the Prophet Nobody has come afterwards who's become more knowledgeable. So in that sense, the statement is still true. Allah and His Messenger know best. But, as the scholars have mentioned, in order to clarify the point of the revelation having now stopped, that you'd simply say, Allah knows best. In those days, it was to highlight saying Allah and His Messenger know best because the revelation would continue to come to the Messenger. When there was an affair that the Messenger was unaware of, then the revelation came to the Messenger regarding that affair. Sometimes there and then that a companion may come and ask the Prophet ﷺ about an affair and if he didn't know, there and then in that scenario, in that gathering, the revelation will come upon him regarding that scenario, that situation, that question. So in those days it was because of that the scholars say the revelation was coming upon the Prophet ﷺ, so you say Allah and his messenger know best. Whereas now the revelation has stopped. There is no more revelation to come upon the Prophet ﷺ or anybody else. So in that case now simply Allah knows best is sufficient. But the Shaykh, he highlights uh, that it's possible to say it in terms of the factual nature of it that still of course from all of mankind the Prophet ﷺ is the most knowledgeable of the Sharia. Nobody else has become more knowledgeable from that angle. But in terms of the Sharia stopping the scholars say enough now to say Allah knows best. Then after that, قال حدثنا إسماعيل قال حدثني مالك عن بالزناد عن الأعرج عن بهريرة أن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم قال قال الله إذا أحب عبدي لقائي أحببت لقائه وإذا كره لقائي كرهت لقائه Again very clear the narration says that the Prophet said Allah said that if my servant loves to meet me my servant wants to meet me loves to meet me then I love to meet him and if my servant hates to meet me because he knows he's a sinner then I hate his meeting.
There are a few side points again mentioned. The actual hadith is clear that the one who is righteous, the one who is upon obedience, wants to meet his Lord. It's like it's mentioned about when the righteous are in the barzakh and the door is opened up into paradise in their grave and their grave is made like a garden from the gardens of paradise. As far as the eye can see, then that person says, Ya Rabbi, aqim sa'ah. Oh my Lord, establish the hour. That person wants to come out of the barzakh into the afterlife. Establish the hour to meet his Lord and to get his reward. But as for those who are not righteous, the disobedient, then they do not desire to meet their Lord. Like it mentions about the same narration, the disbelievers, the wrongdoers, their grave is made a door opening up into hellfire, the evils and the poisons coming through. And they say, Ya Rabbi, La tuqimisa'ah. Oh my Lord, do not establish the hour. They do not want to go. They do not want to meet their Lord and to receive their punishment. So the one who loves to meet his Lord, then Allah loves to meet him. And the one who hates to meet his Lord, then Allah hates his meeting. There's a side point here the Sheikh mentions. Uh, in the Quran, there are certain parts of the Quran that are narrations of what prophets said. Certain parts of the Quran are narratives, uh, narrations of what the prophets said. Like when it says, وَإِذْ قَالَ إِبْرَاهِيمُ And then it says it. When Ibrahim said, and then you got ayat like that. And when this prophet said, and then you got the ayat coming. So those sections there, when it says, وَإِذْ قَالَ إِبْرَاهِيمُ رَبِّ أَرِنِي etc. When Ibrahim said, my Lord, show me X, Y, and Z. That there now, do we say it is the speech of Allah or the speech of the prophets? نُقِلَ كَلَامُ الْأَنْبِيَاءِ فِي الْقُرْآنِ هَلْ هَذَا نُسَمِّيهِ كَلَامَ اللَّهِ أَوْ كَلَامَ غَيْرِهِ الجواب نسميه كلام الله منقولا نقله من كلام غيره فهو كلام الله تكلم به لكنه نقله بالمعنى وأضافه إليه We say it is the speech of Allah narrating from the speech of those prophets it is the speech of Allah narrating from the speech of those prophets. We don't say it is the speech of the prophets. I.e. that part isn't Quran and it's not the speech of Allah. We don't say that. It is all Quran. It is all the speech of Allah. But those sections are the speech of Allah where Allah is narrating the speech of those prophets and messengers. So it is considered still the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. <coughs> Another point. Allah, when He spoke, in fact, when the Prophet وسلم, spoke to the Prophets, like for example, the night of Al Isra al Mi'raj, the Prophet comes across, the other Prophet sees them, speaks to Musa. When the Prophet ﷺ in these narrations spoke to other Prophets, did he speak to them in Arabic or in their languages? Because the Prophets had their languages. All the Prophets of the past, the messengers of the past, they had their languages. 
What is apparent, the Sheikh says, is that it was in the Arabic language and that it was made inspired upon the other prophets and messengers that they understood that also. That brings us to the end of that narration. Any questions up to there? Mm. The narration about the time period, and in some narrations it mentions six hours. Those narrations, I'm not aware of their authenticity. Allah, from what I recall, they were not authentic, some of those narrations. But I don't recall exactly from the top of my head. So you can research that as your homework for this week. Those narrations about the certain time period, some of them say six hours and various things. I'm not sure of their authenticity. So you can check just to see if any of those are authentic about the time spans before the deeds are written or the evil deeds are written Not even cause and effect. It's not just about if it's genuine power, that's absolute shirk without a doubt. But even cause and effect is impermissible. For a person to believe to the level that it's because of the stars lining up that has an impact on the clouds and everything that makes it rain. There isn't that doesn't exist like that. Certain types of cause and effect are clear. The clear. A cloud builds up, the precipitation comes afterwards, the condensation, that's clear. There's nothing wrong with that. The, the clouds are moving in from that side and the wind is blowing this way so you can predict it's going to rain here soon. That's not haram. A general weather forecast like that isn't haram. You can see the wind is blowing this way. You put your little your kite into the sky and your kite is blowing that way. So you know the wind is blowing this way right now. You can see a huge cloud of rain coming just from there. So now you know soon that's going to come here. It's going to rain here soon. That's a prediction based upon the clear signs of what's happening. That isn't haram. What's haram is to say that the stars line up as a consequence of that, they impact the clouds and it rains. There is no cause and effect there. So that is impermissible, that type. But where it's clear, then it's permissible. It's like the farmers they mention, as Shaykh Al-Fawzan mentions in Kitab Al-Tawheed regarding the farmers. The farmers know, the experienced farmers, exactly when in the year to sow the seeds and exactly when to dig them up and exactly when to water various things. You can't say this is ilmul ghaib and this is haram. That's from their experience, cause and effect. They know certain times of the year, that's when it's just right to do this. Certain times of the year, it's just right to take them out. Certain times of the year to give them this much water, that much water. That is just skills and knowledge that they have of the reality of how things work. So now a huge black cloud starts coming this way. You can say it looks like it's going to rain. That's not ilmul ghaib you've got now. That is something just clear that is looking like apparent. But with the stars lining up, there is no connection. That's exactly the same as star signs then. Stars lining up have no cause and effect on rain coming down. Hmm.
stay addicted. Um, is, it, is that also an explanation for like um, time speeding up, like the shortening of time? <coughs> As time goes on, more believers are in the grave, more religions are for Allah, for the time to come. So that's impacting on time becoming fast easing? No, not necessarily. Never heard of that. That's just mentioned as one of the signs of the Day of Judgment that time becomes fast and uh, distances become closed, uh, shortened. Those types of things are mentioned about the way the world goes, but there's no connection. I've never heard of any connection between those two. Yeah. If a person wasn't sure, all the discussion we had before, somebody intends to do an evil. So now what if a person was thinking about doing an evil and he took some steps. So he's thinking about robbing the local grocery shop. He knows there's some CCTV. He's thinking about it. So he thinks, okay, I'll take a few steps. He goes and knocks off the CCTV, cuts the wires and everything. He's taking a few steps. He's thinking about, shall I rob it or not? That there isn't just thinking about it. That there is considered as a firm intention. If you take steps to do something, you're not just thinking about it now. You're going to be classed as having made an intention. Why are you cutting that wire? Because you have an intention that maybe I'll rob this place. You've made an intention to do something as a consequence you're cutting the wires. As a consequence you're doing this and you're doing that. So you can't say I'm taking steps towards an evil but I'm not sure yet. I need to get to the end. Let me cut the wires. Let me do this. Let me kill the shopkeeper. Then I'll decide shall I, shall I rub it or not at the end. You can't say that then. Mm. You were charged to pay a penalty for what? What? Hmm? 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 Some excuse and not paid? No, okay, okay. <laughs> Mm. Yeah, yeah, I understand, I understand, yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe. Mm -hmm. uh, as Sheikh Abdul Masih Abad used to say always with these types of situations, Yurja Lahu Khair. It is hoped, goodness is hoped for your situation. That's, that's what he used to say. No. No, no, it, hey, no, even if you had the full intention to do it, inshallah ta'ala, without any jokes now, this is exactly what Shaykh Abdul Muslim would say. For you then, goodness is hoped for you. You've done that based upon incorrect fatawa. You've been misled by ulama su, as they say. Scholars of evil giving you these fatawa interests. Okay, this is okay, that's okay, everything's okay, mashallah. 
So you've done it upon this misunderstanding and misguidance from those fatawa. Now you've realized, you've stopped. Then those steps you've taken, inshallah ta'ala, it definitely comes under that goodness is hoped for you that you would nothing, nothing would be held accountable for you on that now. It was from the misguidance of others that you fell into that. Any example, any example, the principle is there how we said it. If you go out with an intention to do something, you start taking steps to go and do that thing. Then in the end, you're incapable of doing it for some reason, then principally that's it. Examples, there can be a million examples everybody can make up. What about if you did this or that? But that's the basic principle. You've made an intention to do something. You started taking steps to head down that road to get to that evil you want to do now. Then that's what's been mentioned here. Then that's it, like you said. If somebody thinks of doing a sin, but then you stop for the sake of Allah and you think, no, I can't. You fear Allah, you stop it, then khalas. That's here, like you said at the beginning. You've made an intention to do a sin. You've thought about doing a sin. But you've not done it. You've stopped. For what reason? There were three scenarios. One, because you decided, I'm never going to be able to do it. You're incapable of doing it. But you've not taken any steps or anything. So there wouldn't be any... Uh, goodness for you there, but you'd get the, the evil deed of intending it, wanting it, but you've realized I can't do it. Or you intended it, but then you said, no, no, forget it, forget that. You're going to do something else. So that's just circumstantial, no good, no bad. Or you intended it, but then you decided for the sake of Allah, no, you realized it's a sin, it's haram, and you stopped yourself. There, good, you've got a, a good deed written then. Hmm. All right, we'll stop there then. Go on. There's no minimum you can quantify, but ties of kinship just means keeping those relations and keeping that goodness. What was the phrase they used? Uh, what was it? The phrase used there for the... No, there was... Huh? No, there was another phrase. Wasn't there something about goodness? Uh, good relations, yeah. Keeping the good relations. And that can be an open type of interpretation as to how you keep good relations. It could be for... I mean, if your parents live in a different place... Your good relations may not be possible that you visit them every weekend, but it may be that you ring them every weekend. But for somebody living just around the corner, it would be that you visit them as opposed to ringing them. Somebody in a different situation could be a different quantification of how you define good relations. So you can't really put a figure on that, of what is defined as a good relation with your parents, with others, with, with ties of kinship. It will depend on your circumstance and what qualifies as keeping good relations in that circumstance. Maybe that kind of scenario there. If you go to your parents' house, then all that occurs is haram, or much of what occurs, or several aspects of what occurs is haram. You go to your parents' house and they're doing various types of haram, or there's various types of haram, visible, clear haram upon your children going in there, whatever else. So then you could keep the ties of kinship without necessarily 
having regular visitations as part of that ties of kinship because of all of the harm that arises from it. It's a fair point to be mentioned and the scholars would balance that out. But it doesn't mean you would abandon visitation still. It wouldn't get to that level unless it was really serious. Got to the level of you're saying that your parents are doing some, some magic or some serious level types of things that you just cannot visit and enter their homes. That's another thing. But other haram and sins, then all of us do haram and sins. So in that case, it wouldn't be an excuse to abandon visitation of them, but you would do and take whatever steps to minimize the harm upon yourself and the family from the haram that is occurring in that family or that relationship of yours. Ties of kinship, yes. Making dua for your relatives, making dua for, for, the, for your next of kins, for your relations. That is from the goodness and that is from generally the fold of keeping the ties of kinship as well as everything else physically. Somebody wants to come to the Salafi classes here or elsewhere to the Salafi classes that are being taught in their local Salafi mosque, Salafi center, Salafi uh, uh, hall or hall that's been hired out, whatever it might be. There are Salafi classes going on, but their parents do not like them going to attend those classes. So in that type of situation, what are you going to do? What is that person supposed to do? He knows this is the correct way, this is the correct teaching. He knows he needs to go and study his religion, but his parents don't like it. Again, you need to look at what exactly the situation is. Is it a case of his parents saying, if you go, then when you come back, the locks are going to be changed. If it's to that level of severity, actually, properly, it's at that level of severity, then you wouldn't say to the person, no, carry on coming to the classes then. You'd work out other ways until the situation becomes better. Say to the person, okay, if it's got to that level, then stay at home and just log on to your MixLR channel. Everything is broadcast these days. Go to your room, put on your earphones and just follow that way. Use wisdom in the, the level of the situation. If it's really to that level, his parents are going to cut you off if you go to that Salafi class again. We're going to kick you out of the house. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And it's really serious to that level. And you're not going to say, well, let them do what they want. This is Salafi class. You have to come. Then in that case, use some wisdom. Say to the guy, okay, if it's to that level, to that level of severity, then stay at home. Get your earphones on. Close your bedroom door. Listen to it on MixLR when we're doing it every week. Send your questions forward on the, on the, on the internet, whatever. It's all broadcast. It's all live. Everything done. For example, if it's not to that level, if it's just... A lower level of parents saying, but those Salafis are this and that and you shouldn't be going there and whatever else. Then carry on advising them and encourage them to come and see for themselves. Or if they won't come, tell them, okay, you log on to Mixalah. We'll stay at home this week. I'll stay with you. We'll log on together. We'll listen to this lecture, the one that I go to listen to. And you tell me what's wrong with it. Or if you think there's a problem with it, no problem. We can discuss that and you can tell me. And what will they find of any problem in the lectures that are taught in the Salafi classes? Rather, they'll be amazed and they'll be shocked at hearing things that they've never heard and never been taught of in their lives. So every person look at their situation and deal with it in wisdom. But if it's not of a severe level, then you should carry on coming and try and tell your parents about 
the goodness in the classes, give them the logical types of uh, uh, arguments as well. You tell them, look, I could be on the dr uh, streets with drugs and alcohol and murdering people, but alhamdulillah, I'm going to the mosque. And you're telling me don't go to the mosque. Give them some logical debates like that, what's it, and what are they going to say? You say, look, all these other mosques you want me to go to, they don't teach, they don't have proper classes, they don't teach these books. Tell them I'm studying Bukhari. You know, these kinds of things, simplistic arguments for many people, they're very easy to understand and very difficult to argue against. So use some wisdom with your parents. Try and give them da'wah. If it gets a bit more serious, then use the wisdom if you have to stay back one or two classes. Try and get them to come themselves. Try and get them to listen on Mixala. Tell them you listen to. Listen together today. You tell me today what parts you don't like. For a few weeks we'll listen. You tell me which parts you don't like. And what are they going to pick out? So try and use some wisdom and see what you can do with your parents. Those situations may be difficult, but you strive to try and come. And eventually, if the parents aren't really that strict, it's not to that level of severity, they'll come around. They'll see the goodness in you and you give them da'wah. You show them the impact of you coming to these classes. You go back and you talk to them with better mannerisms than you used to have before you were practicing. You go back and you talk to them and you behave with them in better ways, implementing the sunnah in various ways that you were not doing before. And when they begin to see this character change in you as well, they see the implementation of what you're bringing back from these classes. And that is an impact for them too. That is something that will change their opinion too. So the da'wah in your actions as well. As Sheikh al-Albani said, this truth that you give to the people, it is heavy. The Quran and the Sunnah, the Salafi methodology is heavy. People are used to the tablighi and whatever else. Be nice, smile, that's it. No aqidah, no nothing, no learning properly. When you start teaching these things, it becomes heavy upon the people. This truth is heavy. So Sheikh al-Bali said, don't make it even heavier by trying to give it to people with bad manners. It's already heavy. Don't make it heavier by being too rough and being too this or too that. This truth is heavy enough. If somebody can take this, alhamdulillah. Don't make it even heavier by showing bad manners and bad etiquette and no wisdom in how you give da'wah, what you do. So with your parents, your families, you've got to demonstrate that. Demonstrate the goodness that you're learning here. Talk to them in a manner that you never used to talk to them before. Show them a sunnah that they never knew before. And inshallah ta'ala, you make dua for them that the rectification comes in that. For the purposes of da'wah, yes. Uh, a person who has rejected Islam is a kafir from your family members. You still have that blood connection. You're not going to break that. If it's parents, they still have rights upon you. Kafir parents still have rights upon you. They tell you get up and go to ask to get the shopping. You get up and you go get it. They have rights upon you still. They don't have the rights of Islam upon you. They can't tell you don't go to the mosque and don't pray and drink alcohol. They can't tell you any of that. But even Kafir parents, they say to you get up and go do the chores, clean this, clean that, do this, do that. You do it. They have rights upon you. Other family members who have denounced or whatever it might be, you can keep a relationship with them. They're still your brother, they're still your sister, they're still your uncle, they're still this, they're still that. But for the purpose of da'wah, you're going to try and give them da'wah. That's going to be the intent now. This family member, distant family member, whatever. If you keep some relation with them, you're going to ring them now and again, whatever. It's for the purpose of every time trying to give them da'wah and bringing them back.
That's going to be your intent. Your intent isn't going to be to sit with them now to acknowledge and affirm what they've gone upon. You cannot acknowledge and affirm a person rejecting Islam. So you can't just relax with them afterwards like it's okay, all right, you've taken that route down in your life. No problem, you can just come to our dinners and relax in the family gatherings. You don't give that type of attitude as though to say it's okay, you've taken that decision, that's cool, that's all right for you. You don't have that attitude with things. You give the da'wah to them, that's the relationship you're going to have afterwards. Last question, go on. He worked for, he looked for a flat on. So he agreed he was going to stay for six months, but in the end he's leaving after five months. And she wants the full six months of payment that had been agreed. She thought you were going to stay for six months. Well then really, if you've made the contract like that, you've made the contract, we're going to pay you for six months worth, we're going to stay for six months worth. All of these like lease contracts and everything, they'll have some type of clause, how much notice you have to give before you can exit yourself from that contract, you can leave that contract. If that notice, yeah, oral agree, I mean, it doesn't matter. A contract is a contract, whether it's orally or it's written down. But in that contract now, if, if six months is agreed, and you've told them six months, that's what we're going to stay, that's what we're going to pay you. You can't just at the end of the fifth month say to her, we need to leave now, that's it. If you told her at the end of the first month, actually things have changed, it's only going to be five, can we renegotiate? Fair enough. But at the end of the fourth month or the fifth month, right at the end, you say, actually, we're not staying next month. All right, so there's time. So you can renegotiate. You try and renegotiate with her. If she refuses, then I don't know if you've got much backing for yourself. You've made a contract. You've made an agreement. We're paying you for six months. And if you now want to change it, she doesn't want to change it. Say, no, that's it. I've done things. I can't get other tenants in and things like that. Then maybe... Maybe you're stuck. Allah alam. All right, we'll have to leave it there. We'll carry on next week at approximately 8.15 p.m. inshallah.